This is Star Talk. Hi, Mike Massimino here, aka Astro Mike. That happens to be my Twitter handle. And you're listening to the first season of a brand new series, Star Talk All Stars. I tried to say it like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Did you catch that? <laughs> okay. Star Talk All Stars. I'm your All Star host tonight, and I have with me in studio my comedic co host, Maeve Higgins. Hello. Thank you for having me. Maeve, thank God you're here. Thanks for being here. <laughs> I'm going to go by Comic Maeve, maybe. Comic Let's Maeve? Go with your Astro Mike. Is that your Twitter? Uh, no, panel? but I mean, I just thought of it. I think it's going to be. Comic Maeve. It's yeah. a good This way, they tell, tell them what you do for a living and then give them your name. Yes. That's the way all Twitter handles should be. <laughs> and you, know? you definitely have to do that if you're a comedian and you're not very funny. You have to keep reminding people, I'm a comedian. <laughs> you are very funny. That was funny what you just said. <laughs> thank you. All right, Maeve, this episode of All-Stars, we're going to give everyone a peek into the NASA Mission Control Center. I'm so excited for our guests today. And, uh, you know, these are two very good friends of mine who I both work with, and I think they probably have dirt on me, because as an astronaut, you get to work in the control center um, as a CAPCOM, which is a spacecraft communicator speaking to astronauts in space. I was lucky enough to do that for many years when I was an astronaut. And uh, also, uh, you get to work as a crew member really closely with your flight directors. They more or less uh, run the flight, mm -hmm. uh, making sure you're going to be okay in all areas, mission success and in your personal well-being, which means making sure you're kept alive. They are, the t they are totally in charge. They are the burning bush. Everyone listens to them when they talk. And these are two of the best ones we've got right here. The two flight directors that we'll be speaking with, mm -hmm. Emily Nelson and Royce Renfrew, they're right now coming to us from the Johnson Space Center. How are you guys? Hey, we're great. How are you today? It's, it's great. It's great to have you guys. You look great up on the big screen. Uh, I guess this is a radio show, so people can't see you, but I can see you on the big screen, and you guys both look great. You do. Thank you for joining us. Um, we're happy to be here. It's so funny. You you know you have this job, but you just look like regular people. <laughs> nobody would know. <laughs> you're wearing like blouses and suit jackets, and nobody would know you're kind of a superhero. Uh oh. <laughs> They are, I don't know about the superhero part. They 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 don't need the clothes to be superheroes. They just they yeah. just themselves, and everyone knows they're in charge. The superhero um, gear is when we put on our headsets. There you go. That's it. That's right. right. And we know they're in charge. <laughs> yes. So I thought it might might be interesting. Uh, both of you have had very exciting careers, and uh, you know, I what would you say? I'm going to ask you guys this question because we used to talk about this in the astronaut office. What are the two best jobs you could have in the space program? Number one and two. Maybe not necessarily in, in order. What do you think the most exciting jobs are in the space program? Number one is clearly flight director. And what's number two? <laughs> I guess astronaut. Yeah. yeah. I, I All right, there you go. That's exact, <laughs> but that's the way we used to feel about it, that if, you know, the mo we've, we felt that the coolest job was astronaut. Yeah. We were lucky enough to have that. But I would say a close second, and maybe some people could argue even more cooler than being an astronaut, is flight director. It really is a cool job, and it's not an easy job to get. There's only been 100 people or less than 100 people that have been flight directors. Many more have been astronauts, so it's very select. Where do, you, where do you start to become a flight director? I think that's a good question for our for these two right. very successful flight directors. Can would you? Uh, why don't we start there, both of you? Okay. You can tell us, where, how'd you get to where you're in charge of the control center? So, so actually, I started out as a high school math teacher when I got out of college. Wow. I spent uh, 
seven years doing that job, and that actually played into my getting hired out here at JSC. The original job that I had was as an instructor for the robotic system on board the station. And when uh, they hired me as an instructor out here, they were looking for people that had a technical background and also had some history of a, a teacher or whatever. Yeah. So I actually fit perfectly at a computer science degree and seven years of teaching high school mathematics. And I wound up uh, getting hired out here to teach uh, astronauts how to operate the robotic arm on station. Do you remember teaching me? Do you remember teaching me, Royce? You were I my do. instructor way back when. Do you remember that? <laughs> I or, do. Or have you blocked that out of your head? Uh, so I didn't, how you know, did you rate Moss as a student? Uh, he was great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he forgets. My, my thank, God he, thank God his memory is selective. But I was just going to say is that it's that's kind of, you, you went to, you had to teach astronauts, and I think you know, teaching high school kids probably was not as challenging as teaching astronauts. And it was probably a good way for you to get ready to do that. Uh, so I think your I think your time in the high school classroom was probably good. All right, I didn't know that you're high. So you did that, and then you became a robot instructor for the. Yeah, and then, and then what happened? Over, uh, I became a flight controller for that same system. So I was a robo in the flight control team, which is the flight controller that's responsible for the for the robotic arm on on board station. And then I worked for a while as an Odin. We we have all these. Uh, names of console positions, and then we try to fit them into some description, but mm -hmm. we pick the name first. But Odin was responsible for the, the big computer network on board station, the one that runs it. And then I was, I was uh, the manager of the Odin group for a little while, and I was selected as a flight director in 2008. So uh, a lot of different positions in the control room before I got selected as, uh, as a flight director, but uh, this is by far the most fun job. <laughs> And what about you, Emily? Mine is much more simple. <clears throat> as soon as I graduated from college, I figured out that this is where I wanted to be. I wasn't one of the folks like Royce that started out necessarily wanting to come here. I just knew I wanted to do what I could to make the world a better place, if, if at all possible, and figured out that this was a great environment to work in. Went straight to flight control. I worked as a THOR, the thermal operations, managing the thermal systems on space station as we were assembling the space station and pretty much went straight from Thor to flight. So mine is far less interesting. I only worked in one console before getting selected as a flight director in 2007. How long have you been out here? Almost 20 years, right? We've been out here yeah. almost the same amount. I got out here in 98. Yeah. yeah. So almost 20 years for both of us. Well, so on site 20 years at JSC, and how many years as a flight director for each, uh, each of you? So I was selected in 2008, so uh, eight years going on nine here. And nine going on 10 for me. All right, and, and and you know you say it's a straightforward, simple, but it's not anything like that. I mean, I you know what they did, Maeve, was incredible. As uh, you know, Royce as an instructor and then as a, a flight controller, you know they 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 worked their way up uh, to get into the front room of the control center and then into being a a flight director. It's a big application and interview, and it's they make yeah. it sound easy. I know, right? It is not because I was starting to think, oh, maybe I could do that. <laughs> Maybe no, you I could, but no, it, it takes a lot of hard work and dedication. What do you think are the, like, apart from your qualifications, like, what do you think is the, is the sort of personality type that you need to do this kind of work? <laughs> we have a variety of personality types. That's what makes it interesting. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a game, really, in the flight control community to try to figure out why people got selected. Right? Wow. So people, want, people want to be flight directors. They look at the previous class that got selected and say, well, why did these people get selected? And we, we do have a variety of different uh, 
different personality types in the office, which I think is good, and a variety of backgrounds as well. Just like any team, you want as much of a diverse skill set as you can get. And so with each new selection, we're looking for folks who have skills that would fill holes in our experience base currently. So um, I would say a lot of us, uh, clearly we have all demonstrated leadership capability. We've all demonstrated a capacity to learn quickly because we're certainly not experts on every system, but we may need to become an expert on every system very quickly in the event that something goes wrong. Um, so there are a lot of fundamentals that we had to demonstrate along the way, but our style is probably all pretty unique. We're all a little bit different in that way. As, as far as something goes wrong, can each of you give us an example of an emergency when you were on console that you had to act quickly? Uh, give us the inside scoop. Mm. So I'll, I'll jump in there. The, the the one that comes to mind we were we were talking about before the we started here was the the spacewalk we did in December the EVA thirty five with uh, Tim Peak and Tim Copra uh, during that spacewalk when uh, uh, Tim Copra reported uh, he was starting to see some water on the inside of his helmet in the in the visor area Oof. of his helmet and and we wound up. Uh, executing our uh, protocols that we had put in place to, to make the determination that we wanted to terminate that EVA based on a couple of different signatures that we were seeing and, uh, and brought uh, Tim Coper and Tim Peake back inside, got them out of their spacesuits and, and everything, was, uh, everything was fine in the end. Uh, but obviously that's not the way that we had planned the EVA, but we had uh, prepared and we, we train all the time for events like like that where we need to do something in a hurry to terminate an EVA or to take some other action on board station to keep the crew safe, the vehicle safe, and then work on the success of the of the mission that we're operating. Yeah, it's, I mean that was a that was a very much a life threatening situation. Very dramatic. Yeah. Uh, and probably you know the the water in the helmet is probably the closest we've came to losing someone during a it is the closest we've come to losing someone in, in space. What would you guys agree with that? Well, so in in Mr. Coper's case here, we we were far away from a life threatening situation, but we 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 have very conservative protocols in place now to make sure that we don't get into a configuration where it is life-threatening. So we had the we had the water in the helmet, which triggered uh, actions by my team and myself to bring the crew back inside. But I wouldn't, it could have escalated. That's why we took the actions that we did. But uh, uh, I thought uh, Tim Coper was uh, safe and moving forward the entire time. We were prepared to go to the next level uh, of, uh, of a breakout of an EVA, which is called an EVA abort, uh, but we did not get to that. We stayed in the terminate case the entire time. So that so it worked out okay. We, we ran our protocols as designed based on the signatures that we were seeing and got, uh, got uh, both crew back inside safely. But it, it's still uh, not, a, not a configuration I want to be in, but I thought the team handled it very well, both on board and, and my team there in the control center. A lot of technical speak there, uh, and but a great you know. But you know what? A, it's a so cool, a cool head, a, a cool, cool hand, head, and this like calm voice. That's yes. the voice I want to hear when right. I like notice something right. is going wrong. You right. Know? <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're on to our next segment here. That was uh, that was that was great. Thanks for the stories and the intros. And I'm gonna mm -hmm. turn over the uh, Mave has got 
Some questions. I've got cosmic queries from our listeners. So, um, and these are, they knew that we were going to be speaking um, with people from Mission Control. So these are specific questions for you guys. Um, this one is from uh, Benjamin Luria. And he uh, contacted us through Instagram. And he asks, for the missions that take years, like the Juno spacecraft's trip to Jupiter, are there people at Mission Control watching its progress 24 hours a day for the entire mission? So, uh, I'll, I'll answer that two ways. Uh, Juno's not controlled out of Johnson Space Center. We're, we're oh. you know, but it's somebody else's ISS. problem. There's nobody on board. <laughs> Only people. They, yeah, they, we we were the, the missions that have people on them. People. They, they do it. Uh, the ISS okay. program. We have uh, people in the control center, twenty four seven. But it's not just the control center in Houston. Uh, all of our international partners around the world also have control centers that have people in them and they are okay also maybe we'll edit but, no, but maybe. that's a good point though i yeah. think to say you know that what the johnson's the difference between the flight directors that we have at the johnson space center they've got to worry about keeping people alive and that really changes the whole equation i mean we never want to lose a spacecraft or but they also have worry about um cargo ships and so on you want to keep the spaceship alive but they have the added pressure of keeping people alive people that they know but there but yeah, there's a whole yeah. other group of flight directors right guys that are out uh, out there working these other uh spacecraft without people on them right. but uh, but i would also offer that it's all very much related we're we're big big proponents and champions of the folks that are doing rovers and and missions to 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 other planets because all of that effectively is pathfinding that's eventually going to enable us to send people to those planets uh, like Mars, which is uh, the, the goal of NASA here eventually. Without those pathfinding uh, rovers that are running around on Mars, we would not know nearly as much about what we're going to get ourselves into when we put people there eventually. Totally. There's a question here about the Mars trip, and this is from um, Kyle Yokum. He's from Tennessee. How does NASA feel about setting up a space station on the moon for trips going to and from Earth and Mars? Would that be worth the effort? So what's interesting about getting down to any surface is that it's it's pretty expensive in terms of mass, getting things down to a surface and back up again. So one of the things we're talking about in terms of a way station for getting to and from Mars is not necessarily on the surface of the moon, but yeah. in either high Earth orbit or in an orbit or it's similar to the moon's orbit so that we're far enough away from Earth that it's easier to launch out towards Mars, but we don't have the all of the infrastructure needs that would be required for getting down to and back up from the moon. So our plans going forward do involve setting up um, kind of s spaces in very high Earth orbit, basically pretty close to the moon, where we can assemble a, sta a, a vehicle so that it can head out to Mars. But I, the getting down to a surface and back up from a surface is a lot more complicated and costly than you would, would necessarily right. assume. Right. Well, this question is for you, Mike. Is there a culture shock um, from being an astronaut and then training as Capcom? Um, I think that... Uh, Does so, everybody do that or just... No, not, yeah. not everybody. What is the latest on that? You know, Maeve's second question about everyone, every astronaut doing it. But back when, uh, when I was an astronaut, there were a lot more astronauts. Mm -hmm. And so it was only a, uh, you know, a portion of us I got a chance to do it. I think now, don't they try to get... as almost yeah. part of their training... Yeah, they they, they try, try to, to get everybody. 
all of the new astronauts spend some time as a Capcom so that by the time they get to the space station, they're more familiar with what's going on uh, in real time. And the best way to get an astronaut familiar with real time is to put them in mission control. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and it really helps. You know, my first flight I flew on, the, uh, both of my flights were shuttle flights. And my first flight, I had not yet been a Capcom and I flew. And then I, and then I was a Capcom in between. That was my job in between my flights. And it gave me such an appreciation for what goes on in the control center and makes you a much better astronaut. Yeah. And I think that we realize that now, and that's why they have uh, the newer... They used to say, well, you need to fly in space in order to know what to tell the astronauts in space. But I think it's more more valuable to have an astronaut who is working in the control center and, and learning what it's like to work with a flight director. And Because when, when you say something from from space and you radio that down to Houston, they listen to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And you can you can put the team off spinning off on something that that may not you may not think is that important, but just because you said something, they're gonna be working an issue that that you had no idea how they're gonna be working it. And it's very important to be clear and uh, and appreciate what they're doing. And plus you get to see the day to day of what an astronaut goes through as a Capcom. So what? It's a, great, it's a great job for an astronaut. It's also it's a blast to get to work with these people like yeah. <laughs> What's the most? This is another question. Uh, this is from uh, Phil Findy. What is the most entry level job that gets to stay in the room of Mission Control? Hmm. Do you have like an intern that's sitting there getting you guys coffee or like? <laughs> no, to, or that's even, the Capcom. That's the Capcom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that maybe entry level would be the Capcom. Right? Mm-hmm. In some so, ways, it so is. Yeah. I guess one of the things you need to realize is that is that uh, we train flight controllers just like we train astronauts, if you want to think of it that way. So, an entry level job, uh, somebody that actually gets uh, to come out here and work. Uh, could be somebody right out of college that is now training to be one of those console positions that you see in the control room behind us there. So the most entry-level job in the building, I would suggest, is somebody that's in training to do one of those jobs. Uh, that the, You always see the shots of the one room there in the control center. Uh, we're on that TV all the time, mm-hmm. but the building itself is relatively large, and there are other control rooms in the building where we train uh, as a team, we train flight controllers. Uh, we have an entire group of folks here at JSC who, who are instructors. Mike's very familiar with all the instructors that worked with him the entire time he was training to go do his missions. They also train flight controllers to do their job. So entry level, I would say it's the person in training to do one of those jobs. Yes. Well, Emily and, uh, and Royce, uh, don't go anywhere. We have to wrap up this part of the show, but we'll be right back with more of your Cosmic Queries. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Star Talk All-Stars. I'm your host, Mike Massimino, perhaps known to some of you as Astro Mike on Twitter. Co-hosting today is comedian Maeve Higgins. Hey. Hey, Maeve. having me. Thanks for being here. I like how modest you are saying you, some of you may know, you have like a million and a half followers on Twitter. I was the first person to tweet from space. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. So, but it's all relative. There's what year? What year was that? That was in 2009, just mm-hmm. as the Twitter uh, craze was going. And uh, our our friends that we're skyping with also are on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'll introduce them, and they can tell you their Twitter handles. Good. We have Royce Renfrew and Emily Nelson, both of whom are flight directors at the Johnson Space Center. Thanks for joining us. 
Yeah, thanks for having us. What do you, what are your Twitter handles now that we since we were we were just talking about that? So so a lot of the astronauts, if you type in astro underscore, and you'll get a whole bunch of hits on all the astronauts that are on Twitter. The flight directors uh, went the other direction. Uh, my Twitter handle is tungsten, like the metal mm-hmm. underscore flight. Uh, so a lot of the flight directors have uh, underscore flight at the back end of our Twitter handle instead of astro underscore at the front. And I don't tweet myself, so I forget what mine is. I think I'm Parado Flight uh, with a dot in between, Parado.flight. So what was it? What was it? Parado? So is that your flight director name? Yes, your col- so he's Tungsten and I'm Parado. Okay, so can you explain the flight director names quickly for us? Because that's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. So back in the very beginning, a flight director would have a team of flight controllers that they trained with all the time. We don't get that luxury now. We kind of show up in, flight contro- in the flight control room and see what team we get that day. But back when the flight director was also the manager of a team of people, it was simplest to just put on the schedule that the red team is simming today, the white team is simming, is training today, the blue team is training today. So each flight director started picking a, a color at first, and then, you know, you get through your 24-count box of Crayolas and you start running out of colors. <laughs> so then they started jumping into uh, constellations, gemstones. Uh, these days we go into kind of concepts. One of my classmates was Tranquility Flight. Most recent flight director to, to to announce her name. She came out last week as uh, Infinity mm-hmm. Flight, yep. and so um, it's usually a, a a term that means something to us as associated with our path to the flight director office and our hopes for human space flight. For I the- love the name Tranquility Flight. Don't you? It's I like do- a what would what would yours be? Medication. Or what, what would what would your flight director name be? Oh, so I think it would be like fight or flight. Really? Yeah. <laughs> flight or flight. <laughs> what do you think of that, guys? That's a great one, huh? You guys can See? use this. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> We've got a few more that will be announcing their names soon. We'll recommend that one. That's a yeah. good one. And so how like how important is it for like for you guys to use Twitter and communicate with people? Like we know from this show, people are unbelievably curious. Everybody wants to know what's happening at NASA, what's happening in mission control. So like what does it mean to you guys like to communicate in that way? So, so I started uh, using Twitter when the crew, like Mike was talking about, uh, mm-hmm. he, he uh, did uh, Twitter from space, but the station crew started using uh, social media once we figured out how to get them internet access. Mm-hmm. So I actually started using Twitter just so I could follow what they were what they were doing because they were doing wow. a lot of interesting interesting stuff out there. And then I, I really enjoyed it. So I started using it uh, more and more. And it, it's uh, it's a neat way to interact with the public. It's a neat way to mm-hmm. throw stuff out there that uh, that uh, we're doing in the control center or what we're doing on ISS as, a, as an outreach program, which I think is uh, very useful for NASA. And of course, when we're actively in the control center, it's pretty hard to, to take the time to send anything out. So for some of us, at least for me, I tend to tweet quite a bit more when I'm in a different role, when I'm leading a mission, which means I'm not sitting in the room that you can see behind us, but I'm sitting in kind of a room behind there uh, overseeing the entire four months or six months of the mission. And then I have more of an opportunity because I'm not responding to what's happening every moment by moment to kind of send out statuses of interesting things the crew has done that day or things I try to focus on things that the ground has done the, that the mission control team is focused on to try to give that kind of flavor you know it's some of the some of the things you you, you know you need need to do uh, to uh, to keep things going 
um, as flight directors, and with you know, you talk about following the crew and Twitter and all this. But your job now is much different than it was in the shuttle program, I think, because shuttle shuttle flights were two weeks long, and and you know you had a lot to do. You worried about crew safety, but now with these missions, you know, we mentioned in the other segment that you know you could be up there for as long as a year. Wow. Um, and uh, or maybe it was before we started the other segment, and somewhere. Yeah, in our we were talking about yeah. You just brought somebody home after almost if, a year. After in a space. year, yeah. and it, and it's so it's not it's that's that's a whole different equation. So it's not just keeping them safe and uh, making sure the mission gets done but it's also sort of the long-term mental well-being keeping people engaged and happy and keeping the crew going um morale is a is Mm. a is a big part of it too and uh emily you are the you are the flight director for the tail end of scott kelly's year in space is that right i was i got i uh, was Batting cleanup for that one. <laughs> All right, you're cleanup for that. All right, so so you had the last, I guess, the last three months of that, right? Expedition 46. Yeah, about four months. It. So yeah. did, was that was that on your mind about trying to make sure his mental uh, health, uh, you, know, you know, that he his morale that it kept going and trying to keep it light and fun for the whole team? What was that? Was that part of it for you, or what? what how did you approach it? It was certainly a concern. It's something that Scott and I talked about before he launched, you know, a whole year in advance. His goal was for Scott Stover, his flight director when he launched, and myself to be able to compare notes after he got back on the ground and not be able to tell a difference, that we would have been working with the same crew member. And honestly, Scott is so even-keeled and so unperturbable that that was really the case. So. Um, my personal strategy when I'm about to take over, because each of us, when we take over a lead for a mission, we're taking over for crew members that are already on board because it's just this continuous cycle of crew members. We never ever have the space station without people living there. And so I will start sending them emails up front saying, hey, we're not going to change anything until I take over, but is there anything you'd like to tweak? What are you happy about? What would you like to do differently? Um, What is... Are there any things we can tweak about what the ground is providing for you to try and listen to their needs and make sure that we're providing them the ability to be as efficient as they possibly can? Because we get so much more work and more productivity out of people in space who are happy, just like we get more productivity out of people that are happy on the ground. Can you give us an example of any of those tweaks that they asked you to make, like without like compromising security? No, 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 no. Let's see. I Scott actually didn't ask for any. Um, I don't think we've had. So we have this whole kind of giant system for how we manage the, the crew's day. They have we have this timeline that shows in five minute increments what they're going to be doing from the time they wake up until the time they go to sleep, and then the timeline tells them, okay, it's time to be asleep. And. Wow. Uh, <laughs> then in addition to that, we have a list of activities that if they finish something early, here's a list of stuff. It's just kind of the honeydew list. We need these things done, but they're not as important, so we haven't put them on the timeline. The way that we manage that, there are a lot of nuances. to, to If you can imagine somebody else is building your calendar every day, then you might think that you want your calendar managed one way, and then you start doing it for two months, and then say, you know, I really wish you would you would put my exercise in the morning or I'd rather that we do these kinds of things together and we do these kinds of things alone. So a lot of what I tend to get is, hey, now that I've been here for two or three months, what I'd really like is to change my strategy for how you build my time and um, make it so that I can execute a little more efficiently through the day. And so at what point did um, Scott Kelly 
say to you, I want to wear my gorilla suit in the afternoon. <laughs> I want to oh. wear my... <laughs> I, and I, when I'm in that room, I tend to be a little bit buried and I tend to not necessarily know what's going on in the outside world. <laughs> but that day I happened to be, I happened to get either emailed to me or tweeted or whatever, a link to the video that he had sent down. I had no idea ahead of time. And so the next thing I do is call Scott, where did you get a gorilla suit and how did you get that thing to space? So yeah, he managed to surprise us all with that one. So, so what happened was, tell us a little bit. We have a few more seconds before we go to the to the queries. You uh, did so. I saw this. This is a very famous video that went viral of the astronaut in a mm -hmm. gorilla suit, right? Like, yeah. So he he put on this gorilla suit and then he stuck himself inside of a <laughs> Mike, you'd know, an MO2 bag. It's basically mm -hmm. just a big white stowage bag that yes. you could fit a person in. So he's sitting there, and then poor Tim Peake comes along and starts to open up the bag, and he jumps out of it and starts chasing <laughs> Tim Peake all around the space station. And it, it was really hilarious. You should see the, the Colbert clip from what they did on their opening. I think that's where I saw the first, where I first saw wow. the, the whole gorilla thing in the first place. It was pretty adorable. Good fun, fun and games in space. It's hard work, but uh, you know what Emily said. I think is really important. It's it's fun. Mm -hmm. that those things are fun, but it's also makes you more productive. Keeping yeah. morale happy. up and yeah, it's, it's so it's if you if it's all just drudgery work all the time, even in space, it can get to you. So it's important to keep keep it light as much as you can. All right, I think that brings us to our cosmic queries. What do you got for us, man? Okay, I've got a few more questions. Um. This one is from uh, Camilla. Uh, Camilla is uh, from Brazil, and she's asking, how is the recovery of an astronaut made after a mission, physically? How do you feel when you come back? So um, that's probably a question for Mike, but I'll, I'll take a shot at some of it there. Well, my missions were short. My missions were short now, so it wasn't that bad. It's a lot different with the longer ones. Yeah, so one of, the, one of the things you need to think about is that the recovery of the astronaut when they get back on the ground starts when they launch. We have a very, very mm -hmm. strict protocol that they have to go through what, that, that in, involves daily exercise. Uh, in zero G, if you're not using your bones and your muscles to fight gravity all the time, uh, your bones and your muscles atrophy mm -hmm. and, and uh, uh, you're not capable if you don't do some countermeasures, to, uh, when you got back on the ground, you wouldn't be able to stand up because you haven't used those muscles in six months. So we spend a lot of time making sure that the crew does resistive exercises all day. They do a lot of cardio exercises. Mm -hmm. uh, we have various other, uh, various treadmills that they can run on. Uh, there's a there's a uh, stationary bicycle that they can use and we have a, a system that simulates what it would be like to be lifting weights. And all of those, if you think about it, are pretty complicated. How do you design a system that allows you to simulate lifting weights? That's incredible. Yeah, because yeah, so, you, you could be like Hercules, six hundred pounds in space. You can, <laughs> even I can lift. <laughs> so cool. You we, do, we make sure that they stay exercised, and they, we make sure that they eat the right food, and we keep track of, uh, uh, you know, are, are they sleeping enough, and so that when they come back home, uh, the the transition back to a one G and one uh, G lifestyle is not so dramatic. That almost makes me think, though, that like it must be hard when you get home. Like you know about this. Th there's been somebody watching you. Like Emily said, every five minutes is accounted for. Like everything. So then, when you're home, that's not there anymore. So that must yeah. be a strange. Oh, that's yeah. Like having to figure out what you're gonna do mm. with your life, yeah. and your day. Yeah, yeah that's a problem. 
Yeah, also us. That's a real issue when you it's get back. It's not a problem up front, though, because we schedule them once we're on the ground for the first month. That's true. So we that's can, that, that's you right. You do? Do yeah. all the rehabilitation. Um, yes. Honestly, one our our biggest experiments are experimenting on the astronauts themselves. So they get home and they do a lot of the same things we had them doing in space. Um exercises to demonstrate dexterity, uh, uh, providing a great number of biological samples. Um, so we do a lot of evaluative sessions with them for their first two weeks. And did you have a moment, Mike, when you were back on land again and you were just like, hmm, well. I was, I was you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I think for me, um, it's, it's bittersweet. I, you know, you're mm -hmm. very happy to be alive and, and back. And, and when the, if the mission went well, which in, luckily in my cases, we were happy with what it happens you're very grateful mm -hmm. um and you it's great to see your family and your friends again to see your flight director again uh you know to see the people that helped you get ready and took care of you while you were up there um but i also found we you know when i got back home and, and my crewmates and i for my second flight we had trained together for two and a half years wow. and uh when we you know we were together a lot and uh, every day we'd see each other on the weekends even socially we really were like a family and when, after spending uh, our time about two weeks in space together was our mission and you know we we saw our families went home that night when we returned that next morning we all called each other to see what was going on <laughs> hey what are you up to <laughs> you know and i think you know one one thing just to hear what it brings back when i when i see my friends when i see emily and and royce talking there really is a bond um between the between everyone at nasa but particularly between the control team the flight control team head by the the flight director and the crew and um you know you have this certain bond a certain friendship it's it's sort of like a friendship family colleague combination that i think is very rare because you know when you're in space that you have someone like emily or royce looking out after you and uh, i i knew that in, in our case that the flight director was going to be watching out for us and that whole team was going to be watching out for us and so, you, you know, they describe all the things you're doing. They really did make sure, they really do look out for you um, while you're up there, not just from a mission success, but also from a personal standpoint. Mm -hmm. And when and when you get back, it's just wonderful to see these guys again. And, and, and you know, Emily's right. You still, you still scheduled to do stuff. <laughs> eventually you have to figure out what you're going to do with yourself. We wane you from the schedules gradually. Yeah, it's gradually. All right, so we have about 40 seconds left here. Uh, any, is there any other famous prank beside the gorilla that comes to the gorilla suit that comes to mind? Uh, the one that Sonny and Mike L.A. played on us back in Expedition 14. That one was terrible. What'd they we do? We come back from a, a, a scheduled loss of signal. We reacquire video on side, inside the space station. And I think it was Sonny was doing compressions on Mike L.A. as if he had had a heart attack. <laughs> and the flight director, Ginger, nearly had a heart attack. And so that was not funny. That was absolutely not funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're laughing, but no, that wasn't funny, no. was it, Mayo? No, never again. No, not, not funny. funny. <laughs> All right, so we got to take a short break, and we'll be right back with our mission control friends, Royce and Emily, when Star Talk returns. Welcome back to Star Talk All-Stars. I'm Mike Massimino, your all-star host for the evening. I don't know if I've been called an all-star before, but there you go. And joining me as co-host, Maeve Higgins. Hey, welcome back, everybody. You're certainly an all-star in the comedy world. <laughs> We've been talking about NASA Mission Control Center with actual NASA flight directors, Emily Nelson and Royce Renfrew. They're Skyping in from the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. Thanks for joining us. 
happy to be here. Let's talk about Mars a little bit. Yes. Right? So a yeah. lot of a lot of what they're doing here, Maven, you know, Mission Control Center, we have people there up in space right now. Six month missions, Scott Kelly, one year. We may do another year long mission trying to learn how to get people uh, to Mars. Is, so. is that like NASA's number one overriding goal at the moment, would you say? Or let's ask our okay. flight directors. <laughs> how does how does Mars playing in to what you guys are, are doing now and where you see your role in the future? I'd say that um Everybody here at the Johnson Space Center would very much like to get the opportunity to go to Mars. Um, a big part of what we're doing to try to make that happen is putting together the various building blocks that are, would be required for such a, a large mission. You've got figuring out how to keep humans safe and productive for all that time. You've got coordinating with the how do you get the launch vehicles set up, how do you get the... The, the transit vehicle built, there's a whole lot of pieces, and our goal right now is to build all of those pieces so that then when we have an opportunity, we put the right pieces together and we can start heading out. So that sounds like, is that like the ultimate goal then? Like, I know it's hard to put it into a single yes or no, but like, what if, if it's like, why is NASA there? Is it like, right now, it's because we want to go to Mars? Or is it because we want to do more research? Like, what's the... You know, it's so hard to say because there's so many people throughout the agency, not just here at JSC, but at all of our 10 centers across the country that are working on so many different things that are feeding into our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. um, everything from aeronautics and improving airplanes to research on the space station to getting humans the opportunity to explore further and further into our solar system and beyond. I would say human space flight has near-term goals and long-term goals. And in the near term, we're trying to use our orbiting platform, our laboratory in space, to improve life here on Earth. Our long-term goals are to use the lessons we learn while we're doing that to allow humans to get farther and farther away from our home planet and, and finally start really exploring our solar system. So it's about, you know, in, in, you know, in mission control, mm -hmm. they, have to, they have to be concerned about what's going on right now. Yes. You know, it's, yeah. So they're looking toward the future, but what's what's going on right now? And it, how, how do you how do you guys see the role that the flight director and mission control will play when we're sending people to Mars or Moon or somewhere else? You know, it's a certain role we had. You know, they had with the Apollo program, and then uh, with uh, with the shuttle program, and then it changed. You know, we said how it's we, in our other segments. It's changed, and it's not just a two week mission. It's six mm -hmm. months, and keeping everyone going. Mars or going beyond low Earth orbit is going to be a whole new ball game. How do you think that's going to affect the the mission control center and the flight director role when when we start doing that? So, so you know, I think it's a testament to the architecture that uh, Mr. Chris Kraft and all of those folks stood up all those years ago. That the control room that you see behind Emily and I here it would be very recognizable if Chris walked in there and sat down at the flight director console. He's got all the people for all the subsystems scattered out there in front of him. He's wearing a headset. It would look very much like uh, control centers that he worked in or or Mr. Lunning worked in or Mr. Kranz worked in uh, uh, all those decades ago. So I think going forward, the, the role of mission control is going to have to change a little bit, but I think the configuration that you see today will still exist with a flight director, a capsule communicator, folks who are subsystem experts for all the systems on the vehicle, 
operating the vehicle will be different because of the time delays that are involved in those great distances. Mm -hmm. But the architecture of the control team, I think, will still be exactly the same. I, th I think the time delay is pr probably pretty critical here because with the, with, an, with the shuttle and with the station, you, you say something and they hear you and they get back to you right away. Mm -hmm. When you're going to send people further away, there's, for emergencies, for example, you know, if we had an emergency on the shuttle or on the station, you right away call the control center and, and everyone works together. And that's mm -hmm. what we practice. It's going to be a bit different on, on the way to Mars, won't it? Well, won't it, guys? we've talked about this a little bit. And the, the space station crew is trained to take care of themselves entirely in terms of emergency events because we do have periods of time where the, the, we have scheduled comm outages where they can't get a hold of us. We also, in the early days of the space station, had really long comm outages just because of the way that we were flying through space and the size of the space station at that time. So we do have some experience, even in recent times, of, yeah. of training the crew so that they're very self-sufficient and able to handle whatever it is that comes their way. Because we have near-continuous comm, it's a, a luxury that we've had on the space station, we have moved away from that. We, we make sure that the ground is always accessible and always available and looking over the shoulders of our crew members so that we can provide assistance and make sure that they're able to get just as much accomplished in every day that they possibly can. But we have a history, both in, in Skylab and our work with Mir, with the Russian Mir space station and in the early space station days, of long calm delays, not long calm delays, but long calm outages where the crew had to be much more self-sufficient than we, we require them to be on a day-to-day -day basis. And so in some ways it's dusting off those paradigms and adjusting our training and adjusting the way that we operate to go back to that kind of a, a way of thinking. Yeah, and, and there are some things, uh, when we went from shuttle to station, and you guys, mm -hmm. you know, keep, keep, me, uh, keep me straight on this, but what I found on as a shuttle Capcom and as a shuttle crew member, the crew was doing lots of stuff, like a lot of switch throws, turning stuff on and off, doing a lot of, you know, manual stuff. And mm -hmm. when we went to the space station, a lot of that stuff like switching antennas and cameras and doing, turning on systems and even maneuvering the vehicle uh, is done by the control center. And I, I, I thought it was like, in the, in the shuttle days, the crew did, like, say, 80% of all that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And now, I, it, 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 and the sense I got as a Capcom it was kind of like, I don't know if there's even a number, but I got the sense it was, like, reversed, that all those sort of turning things on and off and housekeeping and, and the systems part of it was done by the ground, like 80% of it, and the wow. crew was more uh, devoted toward doing science. Uh, and mm -hmm. just when do you guys do you guys see that as the way it is now? Because the ground does a lot of stuff, right? You guys control all kinds of stuff, and sometimes the crew doesn't even know what's going on. Is that true? So, so, so by design, right? What we want the crew on board uh, space station to be doing is using our laboratory in space. The mm -hmm. the the experiments that we do in zero g. There's only one place where you can do experimentation that does not have gravity involved and that's our space station so we would we really want the crew to be doing experimentation and research and uh, human research and materials research and everything else that we do on board station as much as they possibly can so we on the ground you're absolutely right the control teams around the world are primarily responsible for operating the vehicle 
keeping it pointed in the right direction, make sure it has power generation, make sure we have uh, breathable air and the temperature inside is the right temperature, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so that the crew can focus on their primary job of doing that, doing that research. Occasionally, we run into something where we have to go hands-on. Somebody needs to go turn a wrench on a piece of hardware and change out a failed, failed component. That is mm-hmm. not something we can do from the ground. So we rely on the crew to go do those ops for us, but we want to get that done as fast as we can so that we get that equipment back in in rotation so the crew can go back to doing what we want them to do, which is research. And is that like ultimately working towards then you can just send like, you know, you barely need to be able to do, you can just be a... I don't know, like a psychologist or a geologist, and you can just go to space, and then they'll take care of everything. That's that's the have the crew do what they have to do, and have the ground take care of what everything else that mm-hmm. they can. You know, that 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 would be ideal, I think. And that's, and that's what really that's what we're doing. We have so Kate Rubens is on the Soyuz, going to dock to the space station tonight. She's a biological scientist, and mm-hmm. she's going to be, and it, it's just great to get to have somebody with that background and a laboratory background on board to be able to execute all of these various experiments. Um, and so ideally, yeah, you can have all of these scientists and physical scientists and medical doctors and, and a lot of our astronaut corps today is made up of those types of folks with that kind mm-hmm. of background who can really dig in on the, the meat of the science because we got the station itself taken care of from the ground. All right, we've got about four minutes left. Oh, I've got yes. some questions left. we've got left. some cosmic queries to finish up. Okay. Um, okay, this is from Kara, and she, uh, she asks, what kind, if any, of good luck rituals happen in mission control? I don't know if, if you're superstitious people. <laughs> it seems ah. like you're rational, but ah. let's this see. A, this let's is a good see. question. <laughs> uh. This guy is so completely superstitious. <laughs> Royce. You are. It's not about what you do, it's about what you're not allowed to do. Yeah, I, I'm very superstitious about wearing red <laughs> in the control room. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting that the, my control teams know that about me. And we all try to wear red whenever all, yeah, he's in the just, just to mess with me. So. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, and then there's a fruit rule too, right? Yeah, all right, we have... Uh, the folks who the engineering teams who support us have a have a superstition about fruit in their in their area of the control center that if you have fruit sitting on top of a console that is the discipline that's going to have problems so uh, <laughs> i made up some stickers in uh, the last shuttle mission that i worked sts 133 for them to have little magnetic stickers for them to put on their consoles that said Fruit free for 133, and uh, we were all successful though. There were- <laughs> yeah, sure, and it's because there was no fruit. Absolutely. I was so sure that you were going to just shake your head at that question and be like, I don't have any superstitious <laughs> rituals. Did you, as an astronaut, did you guys have. Um- I, I, I would offer that the crew yeah. picked on me as well. <laughs> they, they, they do that occasionally. Yeah, they put a. <laughs> One of the crews recently put a red filter over a camera when they knew I was on console. So. <laughs> There's been there were some shown like in Apollo 13, uh, Gene Kranz wearing a vest when he was uh, when he was flight yep. directing. From the from the crews uh, from our perspective, there we've had this thing with the shuttle where um, before the launch in the in the suit room when you were suited up, the uh, head of the office would play poker with the. Uh, did you guys know about this? 
<laughs> this is all classified. So <laughs> you listeners out there, don't tell anybody this. This is classified. <laughs> but we, the, the uh, commander would play poker with the chief of our office, and they would play until the commander won. And once well, the commander see. won, we were all mm. dressed and ready to go. We would walk out of the walk out of the suit room <laughs> and go and launch. And then the the uh, launch team down there in uh, Kennedy Space Center, uh, they had this this uh, these beans, these good luck beans. I don't I don't really know all the history behind it, but I don't know when it started. But beans were they would all eat beans after a successful <laughs> launch. They would they would eat beans. So these things they're nice traditions. You know the Russians yeah. have theirs too and. We could do a whole show on tradition. So that's a great question. Let's see if we can fit one more in. We've got about a minute left. Um, this is a, a kind of a person. Is food allowed in the mission control? I'm guessing because you just mentioned fruit. So we're asking just like in an office, is food allowed and are you allowed to have your phones in mission control? So we definitely allow food because otherwise we wouldn't get to eat. Mm -hmm. um, we don't really, you know, we mentioned before, we have nearly continuous communication with the vehicle and our tradition is that we don't leave the, that control room that you can see behind us mm -hmm. unless we're lost, unless we have scheduled a, a, a comm outage. So we absolutely will race out and heat up our food and bring it back in so that we can eat and drink and, and not just fall over. Um, I forget what the second part of it was. So, so phones, it's, you know, it, folks have their phones. You, my, my daughter sends me a text from, from off at school where she is. I, I want to know that's going on. But mm -hmm. I'm focused on what's going on on the vehicle. Uh, you don't usually see folks uh, uh, on their personal phones in the control room very much at all. Yeah, like taking uh, selfies with them. Yeah. <laughs> None of that. Yeah, I've had friends get very upset that I'm not answering texts, and I'm like, dude, it was in my purse the whole day. I never looked yeah. at it. I think that's fair. You know, food, food is very important, and I, you know, I, th I would love to get the concession in Mission Control Center. We don't really have one, but uh, yeah. food is really important, and you generally have to bring your own. But uh, yeah, the right type of food. game is vending, vending machine food factor, vending. Vendo fear factor. You know, you see who, who will eat the worst food in the vending machine. We're out of time, guys. Royce and Emily, thank you so much for joining us from uh, the Mission Control Center at NASA's Johnson Space Center. Thanks for including us. We had a, a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolute pleasure. And, and Maeve, it's always a pleasure. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Got to get back to my work at Mission Control. No. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of work to do there. <laughs> You've been listening. You're late. <laughs> You're late. <laughs> You've been listening to Star Talk All Stars. I've been your host, Mike Massimino. It's been a blast. This is Star Talk.